When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at Barrister Mario Shea's review of the Irish abortion system nearly five years after we repealed the Eighth Amendment. Two out of every five women who had a fatal fetal anomaly pregnancy had to travel to have the abortion. That's shocking because that was the one emotive issue that most people went, oh my God, you can't have that. They have to be able to stay at home to receive the care. You can't stick them on a boat to Liverpool to come back with a box of ashes and not have support around them. And, you know, all all of the emotion that went with it. But two out of five, almost half, are still having to travel because of the way our laws are struck, you know, the restrictions around them. So I think it will be shameful for this not to be dealt with. And it is not up to the Health Committee to draft legislation. It's up to the department. That was Breed Smith, TD, there, and she was joined for this episode by our own political correspondent, Jennifer Bray, to discuss the recommendations of that report. And we'll hear more from both of them in a moment. I just wanted to mention, first of all, given our recent interview with Rachel Thompson, who was the author of Rough, that book on harmful sexual experiences, there was a case this week in the Irish courts. A man was sentenced to four years for the rape of a student who withdrew consent during sex. She had begged Owen Considine to stop the court heard. I think it's an important case. I'm going to read you out a bit of the court report because it touches on a lot of what I spoke to with Rachel Thompson about the kind of porn-influenced sexual activity and the pressure that some young women I've spoken to are being put under. So Considine had pleaded not guilty. The sentence hearing at the Central Criminal Court this week heard that he and the complainant had been engaging in consensual sexual intercourse that then became rough. The sex continued after the woman had withdrawn consent and begged Considine to stop, the court heard. Considine of Old Barna Road, Newcastle West in County Limerick, had pleaded not guilty to the rape of the woman at her then residence in the city in August uh, 2019. And he was convicted after a trial last January. The woman, a student, told the trial she was out drinking in a city centre pub with friends when she met the defendant. They left together and went to her home where they began having consensual sex. And she said he began pulling her hair and banging her head against the headboard of the bed. He grabbed a fistful of her hair and she asked him to stop And he did stop, but then he did it again. The court heard the sex continued in a consensual way at this point. And then the woman testified that after a while, the man became much rougher and he put his hand around my neck and started to choke me, she said. Uh, She said that at one point she was unable to breathe and she was frightened and was shaking her head to tell him to stop. She said he moved his hands onto her shoulders and was pinning her down. 
The court heard that it was at this point she withdrew her consent and the man continued sexual penetration without consent. And this is the words of the woman. I started begging him to stop, but he didn't stop having sex with me, she said. And this lasted around 90 seconds before she was able to move him off by getting her feet up and under him and pushing him away. Considine apologised to the woman and told her he thought that she liked it and that he'd had a previous girlfriend who liked it. And he also said he couldn't stop because she was so good looking. The woman was upset and asked Considine to leave. He initially refused and said he wanted to make sure she was okay, but she told him she just wanted him to leave and he did. The court heard. So imposing the sentence on Wednesday, Mr Justice Paul McDermott said rape was a very serious offence, whatever form it takes. He said it was a violation of a victim's bodily integrity and grossly invasive act of violence. And he said that the circumstances of this particular case were somewhat unusual, but consensual sexual engagement beforehand does not excuse a failure to stop, which is such an important message uh, to be said out loud. Mr Justice McDermott set a headline sentence of four and a half years. He noted that Constantine accepts the verdict of the jury, but continues to deny rape. And he said there was no guilty plea or expressions of remorse, which would allow the court to reduce the headline sentence substantially. He said Considine's regrets are focused on the impact of this case on his family, but there has been little or no thought for the victim. And in her victim impact report, the woman said she was left with bruising on her arms and neck and suffered bleeding from her scalp. She said she lost any sense of safety in her own bedroom and felt safer staying out all night than she did in her own bed. She experienced suicidal ideation and said that during the trial, she felt like she'd been the one on trial. Addressing Considine directly, she said, you've offered me no explanation, admission or remorse. You took so much from me in just 90 seconds. After the woman identified uh, Considine through Instagram and Facebook, Gardy contacted him by phone and he knew why they were calling. He told the guards, I got it wrong. It was wrong. Is she okay? I took things too far. I need to face up to that. But during the trial, he attempted to go back from these admissions and uh, Lisa Dempsey, the barrister prosecuting, told the court, As I said earlier, I just think it's a very important case. It shows that consent can be withdrawn and it also highlights the issue around choking and other rough sexual activity, the kind of activity that seems to be being normalised. Certainly, as I said, from talking to people for an article I did for the Irish Times, and I think it's something we need to keep highlighting. And as always, just want to send out our admiration for the woman in the case for going through it. It's not easy. And like she said, she felt like she was the one on trial. But thankfully, um, justice was done in this instance. Now, the National Women's Council has warmly welcomed Marie O'Shea's review of the abortion system and stated that the report must act as a catalyst for system change so that every woman who needs an abortion can access it in Ireland. The recommendations cover a lot of areas, um, geographical coverage, the three-day wait, which is something that's very controversial. There are also recommendations around decriminalisation and on reviewing arbitrary restrictions on care in the cases of fatal fetal anomalies. The director of the NWC 
Orla O'Connor said this report shows that despite the wishes of the vast majority, women are still traveling for abortion and doctors still face criminal liability in certain circumstances. We know that 80 percent of people do not want women to have to travel to access abortion and that 71 percent believe abortion should be treated like any other health care procedure. It's very welcome that this report will now go to the Oireachtas Health Committee and we hope that committee will present its recommendations before the summer recess. We've also heard this week that some government ministers are understood to be uncomfortable uh, with the far-reaching recommendations put together by Barrister Mary O'Shea. And so we wanted to discuss this discomfort and also the reluctance maybe to, uh, to sort of go forward with the recommendations and to find out what the next steps are and why it's so important that these recommendations are moved on. So to discuss it all, we have Jennifer Bray, political correspondent with the Irish Times and Breed Smith, who you heard a minute ago, the People Before Profit TD for Dublin South Central. And she's a socialist, feminist and trade union activist. I began by asking Jennifer to give us the background to this report. Yeah, so if you cast your mind back to the successful referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment, after this, then obviously there was a lot of work done to put in place the legislation that would make effectively make abortions legal for the first time in the history of the state. That law came into effect uh, on the 1st of January 2019, um, which seems like a very long time ago now. But what it effectively said was in order to see whether the law was working as it should be um, and was achieving the goals that it was set out to achieve, there will be a review inbuilt into the law. Um, there was a bit of debate at the time whether it should be five years in or whether it should be three years in. Um, eventually, it was decided that the shorter duration would, would be more uh, feasible, more practical as well. Um, so what effectively happened last year and the year before was that this independent review was commissioned by the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly. Um, There was a couple of different strands of research to it. One of the elements would look at the experience of women using the service. One of the elements would look at service providers like hospitals and GPs. And then the independent chair will come along, collate all the work and come up with a series of recommendations for government. They chose Barrister Marie O'Shea to compile this report. She submitted it then towards the end of February to uh, Stephen Donnelly. And then it has been published this week. So effectively, it is making good on the promise that they uh, made uh, at the very start of this law coming into effect, that they would look at it and say, how effective has it been? Is it achieving its goals? And that's how we've ended up with the report that we have now on our desks now at the moment. OK, and we're going to talk a little bit later on about the response from within the government and, and wider and uh, the wider political arena. But let's talk about the report first. And you wrote a piece this week uh, showing 10 key findings from it. So let's go through some of the most important ones so listeners can get a sense of of what the report found. Yeah, so there's a couple of different elements to it. I mean, there are some kind of key recommendations which people will probably have heard a lot of over the last couple of days. One of them is in relation to this the three-day wait. So this is the amount of time you have to wait if you want to get access to abortion medication uh, between your first and third appointment with, with a GP is the vast majority of, of abortions take place um, within that community setting. Um, so the recommendation in the report is that the three-day wait, instead of being mandatory, that a woman will be given a right to request it. Basically, if you know in in normal english that it would be optional that you wouldn't have to actually wait 3 days to access abortion medication um that's one of the one of the key recommendations there's also a recommendation in terms of decriminalization so currently medical practitioners who fall foul of the law can be jailed for anywhere up to 14 years and what the report found was that it was actually deterring uh, medical practitioners from being able to provide the service because there was 
I don't know whether they use the term chill effect, but it's effectively what they were saying, that a chill effect, that they felt that instead of being protected by the law, they were being deterred from providing the service. And also that it was stigmatizing for women as well to have this service that is effectively has a criminalization element to it. So, so that was that recommendation. Then there were also recommendations in relation to abortions in the case of fatal fetal abnormalities or where there is a risk to the serious risk to the life or risk to the uh, serious risk of, to health or risk to life of the woman. What it found was that the way the law is worded right now is just too ambiguous and that medical practitioners are having to basically interpret it in whatever subjective way they can. Um, and basically, they're operating within this framework that is both too restrictive, but also too vague. Um, so, for example, in terms of what the law says about fetal, fetal abnormalities is that you can access an abortion if that's your diagnosis, um, if medical practitioner has formed the view that the fetus would likely die outside the womb within 28 days. The problem is that doctors say it's actually very difficult to make a judgment like that, um, especially with that criminalization element that we talked about hanging over the hanging over the act. Um, and then in, in the other case, what exactly is a serious risk to the health? Um, and could different doctors interpret that differently? So I think they want to kind of tighten that up a little bit as well. And then there was also kind of a part of it about conscientious objection. So obviously at present in the law, um, you as a medical practitioner have the right to conscientiously object. But let's say if you're a GP and you don't sign up to the service because you don't agree with it, you are obliged to pass, basically refer a patient on and say, I don't, but this person does effectively. And they did find that where people were abusing conscientious objection uh, rules that they could do so with impunity. Um, and they recommended this. Um, I actually hadn't heard of it before, um, but it's it's a piece of law in New Zealand where basically if they're, let's say in reality, if you've got a hospital or a local area where there's no abortion services um, and a woman comes in and everybody in that hospital is a conscientious objector, that basically in, in the legislation, it could be overruled if this is harming the health, a provision of healthcare to the woman. It's not overruling your personal conscience objection, it's actually in terms of a human rights um, perspective of, of care that a woman should be able to receive. So they were kind of the, the, the main parts of it. And there were some other interesting findings that I can talk you through now or a bit later about the geography of it, which is really yeah. interesting. Let's go to the geography and then we'll go to the reaction to it, because it is interesting to see how access to abortion, depending on where you live, is, is a big issue, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, like there was a really interesting map in the report which showed a county by county breakdown of how many GPs are providing the service, you know, in, in Wexford and in, you know, Kilkenny and Carlow. And I found that like in the Midlands, border counties in the southeast, that uh, there was really very low um, provision amongst GPs. I think um, half the counties of the Republic have fewer than 10 GPs that have contracts for termination of pregnancy services. Um, and nine had fewer than five that was my count of it last night from looking at it. So this is data from 2022. Um, and I think what the report is saying, because some areas are so stretched in terms of having such little um, service provision, that should anybody in those areas actually pull out from providing that service, that the service would effectively become untenable. Furthermore, away from GPs, if you look at hospitals, only 11 out of the uh, 19, I think it is, are providing full services at the moment. Now, the cabinet was told this week that that will be increased by four by the third quarter this year. So we're talking the autumn of this year. But I, I think what it's actually found is that if 
anybody was to pull out in those specific areas that the service could cease altogether. Um, and there was an interesting recommendation, which kind of has flown beneath the radar a little bit. I don't think the government will take it on board. But basically, they said, let's say there's a hospital that isn't providing services and you go to the hospital and they say, sorry, we don't provide these services and you get redirected to another hospital. That funding will be diverted from the non-providing hospital to the providing hospital on a fixed to fix some per patient effectively. I thought that was really interesting and, and it kind of went below the radar. But yeah, the geography, basically, if I was to summarize it, I would say right now it is a postcode lottery. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I want to come to you, Breed, and just to let everyone know, as, as some people do, that you have been an activist on this issue for a long time. And you are, I think you were the first public representative to speak about their own abortion. Um, it's a good while ago now, and I remember it very clearly. It was a really important intervention, I think, in the whole debate. What did you think of the report? Well, it was anxiously awaited. I mean, it is a bit late coming, but um, and I've been asking the minister at Promise Ledge, etc., for, for months now, when are you going to publish, when are you going to publish? But... I haven't seen it and I absolutely haven't read it all. It's a very long and detailed report. Um, but uh, uh, having received it and seen it, I very much welcome it. I think it's a big step forward for uh, the provision of abortion care in Ireland. And um, I do welcome it, absolutely. And I think those politicians who say, oh, let me read it first, I must read it first, are not listening to the to, to, to the music that's circulating at the moment. Um, I was at a press conference this morning with the abortion uh, working group and the Irish Family Plan Association, the National Women's Council, Doctors for Choice. They were all represented at it and, and more groups and they're all warmly welcoming it. A few uh, different criticisms of where it may, may fall short, but a big warm welcome overall and want to see these things put into place. And as um, Orlo O'Connor from the National Women's Council said, it's now over to our politicians to legislate for the recommendations in the report. And this is where you're going to meet the difficulties because straight away, Leo Varadkar and others were off the block saying, oh, I'm uncomfortable with this. And they zoned in particularly on the three-day waiting period. And that's, it is an important um, recommendation from the report that that should become optional rather than mandatory. That's very, very important. And for all the obvious reasons, particularly to us women here in the room, that it's insulting, patronising, etc., etc. Um, and there's no other area of health where you'd have this kind of mandatory demand on you to go off and think about what it is, that the choice that you want to make over your own body. Um, so we all get that. Um, and they, 
they get it and, and, and advocate it for the women having a choice when they fought for repeal. But I have to say they were dragged kicking and screaming into that space at the time. And now they're saying, oh, I'm uncomfortable with this because that's not what I said to the people. But if you actually go back on the record, and Mairead Enright has been very good on this, when they sort of said, here's the sort of legislation we might put to the people, uh, or might put before the Oireachtas if the people vote um, to get rid of the Eighth Amendment, they didn't actually include the three-day mandatory waiting period. That came much later. That came end of March. Remember, the, the, the repeal vote was held in May. And at the end of March, um, Simon Harris brought out this announcement that we we could insert a three-day mandatory waiting period. But that was a sap to his own backbenchers and ministers who were had, had cold feet on the issue. And that was to drag the politicians again, kicking and screaming, into the right space. It wasn't, um, and I think maybe Coveney was one of them that he was trying to placate. Um, so to say that that's the basis on which people voted and therefore... I'm uncomfortable, is very disingenuous. You can't go back on how people vote and say that's why they voted this way and that's why they voted that way. But the one piece of actual statistical kind of evidence we do have was the RTE exit poll on the night of the 25th of May 2018. And that showed that the majority who voted yes, I think it was 80% or something, the answer they gave as to why they voted yes was to give women a choice. And, And that's quite strong evidence as compared to um, Leo Varadkar suck in his thumb and say, I went out and campaigned for it, therefore the three-day wait is really important. But what I think is interesting about the focus on the three-day wait is that it goes to the heart of that idea about not trusting women to make their own decisions about their own bodies. It's just that lack of trust over women um, and it's so misogynistic. and it, 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 it's, it's sort of funny, but it's not. But it's one that we must win. Um, we must win a load of things in this, but I think we must win this. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're right. I I know that there's a lot of focus on the three day wait and there are other very important things like the fatal fetal abnormality and the the risk to women's life as well. But the three day wait is infantilizing. And I suppose as someone who had an abortion, traveled for an abortion myself, you did as well, Breed. You know, I I think the experience of most women that I've spoken to, certainly when you made that decision, you're very clear about it. You know exactly what you want to do. And the idea that you're not clear about your own health, and that you need this sort of three. I can't think of any other health procedure where people are told they have to go off and think about it for three days. No, that's right. And I mean, there is, obviously, there is, you know, some people might be uh, not clear about what they want. They may feel restricted by family or circumstances or their relationship or finances or whatever, and really not clear about what they want. Then they may need to see a counsellor. That's fine. But to make it mandatory for to tell a woman that she, she has to take time to change her mind is absolutely awful. And actually when you think about how this plays out, Pather Tobin has already suggested, and everybody knows Pather Tobin is a, a, an activist on an anti-choice side, uh, that we should increase it to five days. Um, and all of the evidence that has been brought forward in this report shows that very clearly this three-day mandatory wait in particular discriminates against the most marginalised migrant women, women in domestic abuse situations, teenagers, poor people and people in particular who don't have abortion access uh, geographically in their area. So if you've got to travel from Donegal to, I don't know, Galway to see a GP and then come back three d- within three days later, it's just going to make it impossible. You know, it's mm. um, it flies in the face of the idea that we want to give women a choice. When we say women, girls and pregnant people, we mean all of them. 
We don't mean exclude the ones that are in rural Ireland or in the deep south or something. Um, I had an email from somebody there who said it, the abortion services in Kerry are constantly being referred onto Cork. So they, they can't get them in Kerry. Imagine yeah. a county yeah. that size and imagine a county with that population of diversity of, of women and girls as well, including all the migrants and stuff, Ukrainians and all that have been moved into the area in the last while. So you're denying them the right and saying, off oh, you pop to Cork. And then if you've got to go to Cork, back to Cork again within three days because you've had this mandatory period to think about your own circumstance. I mean, it's hugely discriminatory. So, yeah, it definitely has to go. Yeah, and just talking about the, um, the I'm looking at the National Women Council's uh, press release here where they're, they're talking about they're welcoming the recommendations to review legislation for the fatal fetal abnormality and in cases where the women's health is a risk, which will obviously widen access for lots of people who need the health care, but there will be women left behind. And the National Women's Council are calling on the Oireachtas Committee to recommend the removal of the 12-week limit uh, so that the decision is left up to a woman and her doctor because the World Health Organization recommends against gestational limits. Jennifer, that didn't come into the report though, did it, about the 12-week yeah, it did come into the report, um, but only in very specific circumstances. So it recommended that women would be able to access abortion without condition beyond 12 weeks if, I think there were two or three circumstances, specific ones laid out. One of them would have been whereby a woman wouldn't have been able to access a scan in that time. And that actually could come back to the geography issue that we were talking about there. Um, and I think another one would be whereby a woman had taken abortion medication, but it hadn't been effective that she would be able to yeah. access abortion beyond the, the 12 weeks. And could, could I just say on the, the three-day, um, it's so interesting, actually, if you look at the politics of it, the breed was the breed was talking about there and like casting your mind back to that time in 2018 between, uh, effectively between March and, and May when, when kind of the rubber hit the road, really. What actually happened was that Simon Coveney, like he would have, you know, a very senior member of, of Cabinet, he was against the proposal to allow unrestricted access to abortion up to 12 weeks of pregnancy. He was against the government's proposals in that regard uh, ahead of the referendum. Then there was, I think it was early in the week, I remember there was uh, an op-ed he did, an opinion article uh, in the Irish Independent, where he came out in favour of the 12-week proposal. But he said it would only be where there were, if it was coupled with strict medical guidelines. Um. And in that piece, when he was talking about strict medical guidelines, he mentioned a two or three day pause. Um, so this is kind of where this idea sort of came into, took on a life of its own, really. And I remember uh, in that piece, he was talking about the fact that, you know, I think the phrase that was used was allowing a pause period between two or three days after a woman requests an abortion would ensure that she makes a fully considered decision. Um, and that was the rationale that he gave at the time. And I think he said it would allow the state to outline alternatives to abortion. And I think if we, if you look at the report now, what it's actually shown is that it's 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 um, making the situation intolerable for some women because of the fact that, like Breed said, uh, you may have to travel between Cork and Kerry. You may be a migrant. You might not have a PPS number. You could have all these kind of challenges. Or like you said, Roisin, you could have literally, like most, the vast majority of women, I imagine, have made up your mind. And when you've made up your mind, you've made up your mind. Um, and the report is quite um, strong in those terms, I think. Um, and I do think the debate will become kind of focused on that, um, which is fair enough. Uh, but it would be also interesting to see 
how exactly the Health Committee, which is where this report has been referred on to now, tackle that issue, but also the issue of the ambiguity in the law around those those other areas we were talking about. And there's a hugely political element to this because, right, so earlier this week, I went to all of the cabinet members um, and asked them to give me a comment about the abortion review. Did they have any concerns? If so, about what? Um, what would they do about it? And it was it was a pretty short and snappy query. You know, it's not going to take up too much of anybody's time. Um, the only people who got back to me on the record were Green Party ministers to say that they welcomed the report and etc, etc. Now, I bumped into someone who will remain unnamed, <laughs> um, but I asked them why they hadn't responded to my query and they basically said, I'm not going there. And I think that that's the attitude of some politicians is I made this mistake before um, of, you know, getting involved in this debate and I, you know, was put under pressure or whatever. I'm not going there, but it's kind of not good enough. We do need to know where every minister stands. And look, people have said, oh, well, I need to read the report first. I absolutely accept that. But like I read the report in four hours on Tuesday or Monday night. It, it can be done pretty quickly. It's not that long. It's 130 pages. It's very easy to read. It's very well laid out. So that's what I would say. It will be great by the end of this week. And I'll, I'll stick with that to find <laughs> out actually where the, the cabinet, where they like, because it is important to know where your elected representatives feel about mm. something so important for women. Uh, Breed, you're there on the ground. Is that the kind of vibe you're getting that the people are just, we've been through the repeal thing. It's five years ago now. They just don't want to get involved. They don't the hassle that's going to come with it. Yeah, definitely. And um, we're coming into probably the last leg of the this term, you know, since 20, 2020. So if it goes full term, obviously there'll be an election in, in, in February 25. But that could happen next year in 24. So they're all watching their back and ba- watching their backyard. It's shameful, though. It really is. I mean, Jennifer said she read the report in four and a half hours. I don't have four and a half hours to read a report, but I have staff. I have, you know, advisors and secretaries. We have members who fought for this thing. And there's they're all willing and able, very able and capable of reading a report and advising you. And they're all falling over their staff in, in here, you know, plenty of supports and resources. So not having read it is not an excuse in my book for any um, TD and particularly for ca- members of the cabinet and ministers and stuff. But however, there are members of the opposition who seem to be, um, you know, in particular Sinn Féin, seem to be unwilling to, to say anything about it thus far and they would they've loads of support and advisors and smart people who could easily get through this and 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 you know brief them very clearly on it so look i think what we are looking at is a year or more of this being kicked around like a football at the health committee um witnesses being brought in they've already agreed to bring in mario shea herself which is good um but there'll be, oh, yeah, let's bring in such and such. And the other side, i.e. the anti-choice side, will be saying, let's bring in such and such. And of course, it'll there'll be other stuff at the health committee. The health committee is one of the busiest committees in here. So it'll be kicked and kicked and kicked. And next thing you know, we'll be on top of an election and no legislation will have changed whatsoever. However, I have a bit of good news. Oh, <laughs> this is great, Breach. <laughs> uh, we, we have a bill in the lottery for the last year, which attempts to amend the legislation more or less in lines with everything that's been recommended here, maybe going a little bit further than Mario Shea's recommendation and more in line with what the National Women's Council are saying. In other words, lift the three-day uh, mandatory limit, 
uh, give extend it beyond the twelve week ceiling so that they give uh, women more choice and you know deal with the circumstances. We want full decriminalisation. Now maybe Jennifer could comment on this when I shut up, but I don't understand why they're saying it's not full decriminalisation. And the only thing I can think of is that it decriminalises for practitioners. But does that mean that say a mother who helps her daughter get the pill? Uh, illegally or something is is, is potentially the, the butt of criminalisation, like what happened in Derry and Belfast. And then also the um, the issue of fatal fetal anomaly, which I think is hugely important. I think the evidence shows that for two out of, uh, two out of every five women who had a fatal fetal anomaly pregnancy had to travel to have the uh, to have the abortion. That's shocking because that was the one emotive issue that most people went, oh my God, you can't have that. They have to be able to stay at home to receive the care. You can't stick them on a boat to Liverpool to come back with a box of ashes and not have support around them. And, you know, all, all of the emotion that went with it. But two out of five, almost half, are still having to travel because of the way our laws are, stru- are stru- you know, the restrictions around them. So I think it will be shameful for the... Um, for this not to be dealt with. And it is not up to the Health Committee to draft legislation. It's up to the department. So kicking it into the Health Committee, yes, absolutely, it should go there for discussion. And I'm also calling for statements in the in the Iraq Senate that they give us two hours or so to make statements for each party and group to have their say on it. But at the end of the day, it's up to the department to, to legislate around this. And Breed, you mentioned Northern Ireland there, but of course it is fully decriminalised in Northern Ireland. That's the, the, yes. the amazing thing. Exactly. Um, and going to, uh, I was looking at the NHS website there. You know, it's just, it's worth remembering that in England, Wales and Scotland, uh, you can have an abortion up to 24 weeks. Do you know what I mean? That's that's what's normal. Like 12 weeks is a very, very short space of time for people to, to access it. But just going to the decriminalisation uh, bit, Jennifer, that Breed was talking about, what is the situation at, at the moment and what what potentially could change in that, do you think? Yeah, so uh, Breed's right. And the, the report is, um, it's very specific, actually, in the language about decriminalisation. I think it mentions specifically medical practitioners. And I actually had the same question as Breed. I was wondering, OK, well, what, which category of people does it leave it open to to be criminalised? Now, I remember at the time when criminalisation was being debated in the Dáil with Simon Harris, he was basically talking about needing to keep this element in. I think, to the best of my recollection, Breed might have a better memory, it was this idea of women potentially being coerced by a partner or uh, someone in their lives uh, to um, access abortion care against their will and that that measure being in the law could potentially... Um, save from that. And I think that's probably where the space that that will be left in. I don't think, I remember at the time there was no, obviously if you procure an abortion yourself, you know, well, we have access up to 12 weeks now, but, I, you know, the specific example Breed gives about a mother, um, that actually is quite ambiguous and quite vague. And I think that is definitely something that the health committee will need to establish and we'll need to kind of dig down into. I would be very interested as well to see the timetable for the health committee. How quickly do they intend to consider this? What format will it take? We, we don't really know any of these things yet. Um, And what format will the report take? Because you remember, obviously, 
it was a committee before where all of the recommendations kind of came to be solidified effectively over a Christmas period just before the legislation passed. And um, so I, th- I think that will be an interesting element. And Breed is right. Like if this thing is kind of dragged out for a very long period of time and then let's say it sits on the desk of the Minister for Health for a couple of months, like I do believe that we will have an election um, in the fall of next year. Um, and it does strike me that politicians are a bit, you know, I don't like I said to you, the politician who I bumped into who said, I don't I don't want to I'm not going there, basically. Um, what would definitely be beneficial, like I said, is the timetable and to provide clarity on the question that you ask, like, OK, if you're going to remove the criminal sanction from medical practitioners, where does that remain? Yeah, I, I, I think it could be find this a bit depressing after all the celebration of repeal and the victory that was won and thinking that we've moved on and left those dark days behind us. But this could be a bit depressing, actually, to see the reaction of the political establishment. So I just was I was going on about the bill that we put in that was actually pulled from the lottery recently. And because um, we don't get very much private members time. And interestingly, it's been re- there's, it's going to second stage in the House on the 25th of May, which is the fifth anniversary of repeal. So, yeah, yeah, it's going to be interesting because that bill covers all of this stuff we're talking about. And and it's very simple. It's a half a page and it just amends this section and that section. I can send it on to you if you want to have a look at it. And um, and I will be sending it around to all the parties and all the groups and asking for their support on the 25th of May and mobilising outside uh, the Dáil on it. Not a big, you know, angry protest, but a, a lobby to say, Listen to women. This is how this is the real lived experience of women and pre- pregnant people. It's not sucking your thumb and saying, "Oh, how do, how do, which way is the wind blown today?" This report is very very clear, and it's very uh, extensive, and it's very well done, and it is dealing with the lived experience and it's recommending best international practice. So that's hugely important. So the twenty fifth of May is an opportunity for us to speak to the movement again and to speak to, to, to women and pregnant people and those who may find themselves in crisis pregnancy and young girls as well, because they're a big part of this. Like teenagers and young girls need to have have access to all of all of the um, uh, health regulations that, that, that can help them uh, understand and navigate their way through complexities and they shouldn't be forced into, um, you know, into having to wait this three days if they make up their mind as well. Yeah, I mean... I'm not a political reporter, clearly, but so there's something that's just striking me about this reluctance and this people being uncomfortable to look at, look at it again. I mean, is that not like what we had a review? They they commissioned a review. They asked this person to come up with recommendations. The, the person has come up with recommendations. How can it be sort of good enough to just go, oh, I don't really feel like doing that? I mean, I don't understand how that's possible. These are, this is the lives and health of women in this country. You know, a person that you've asked to look at it has told you this is what needs to happen. So mm. it's not really, I don't really care if you're comfortable or, you know, am I being a bit naive there or what, what's the no, story, Jen? Do you know no, what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. I think um, I remember talking to someone about this review uh, I think it was before Christmas and I was like, when is it in? Has it landed? When will it be in? You know, I've kind of been harassing people on it, to be quite honest, but um, <laughs> quite frequently. Um, and they were saying, you know, they were trying to temper my expectations. This was a government source. And they were like, look, I don't know why you're so, you know, hung up on this report. Like, it's not going to make any recommendations. And I said, what? And they were like, no, I don't think it's like that kind of report. It's basically looking at how the law is operating like it's just an analysis of it and I kind of said that's not my understanding at all and this would be someone who you know relatively in the know well quite in the know I would really hope that they would be in the know but um 
uh, and then obviously as the report came out, it has a whole series of recommendations. And I think that what happened was that a lot of politicians were very surprised by how far reaching the recommendations are. They're quite, you know, I think we described it last week as sweeping because it is across the board. Um, and I think that's actually what happened is people maybe in the political world didn't expect that. And now it's kind of come at them and they're kind of thinking, oh, OK. Um, and like I when I brought you back there to what Simon Coveney said, how he got on board, there was many other people in government and outside government who had a very similar journey. I will support it if this I will support it if that um, and we obviously we know what happened in terms of the legislation passing. But the point I'm trying to make is. These pe- a lot of people came on board with conditions attached, basically. And there's an argument being made that, well, we presented a version of the law to people before the referendum and said, if you vote yes, this is what you're going to get. Now, I do think that that is an argument. I, I can understand the argument. I can. Um, and there is also an argument that some of the conditions attached to it etc helped to sway maybe a middle ground that maybe would have been could have gone one way or the other but if you look at it on the other hand just trying to be totally balanced here now if you look at it on the other hand what did people actually vote for and it would appear to me that they voted for to to allow the Oireachtas to legislate for abortion to, to give the power to the legislators and say it's up to you basically and you know, what, like you said, what would be the point of putting in a review uh, if there's not going to be any changes from it? And I think what you're seeing this week, I'd say what you'll see is maybe one minister coming out and saying, well, actually, I do wonder about this, that and the other. And then they'll all come out after when they have a little bit of political cover. Oh, well, I hope so. But I mean, I, just going back to that, we all had our ears to the ground at the time, right, five years ago and, and beyond when the, when the campaign was going on. That wasn't what was going on on the doorsteps where no. people were saying, well, now that I've heard of the three day wait thing, I definitely vote yes. Sorry, that just wasn't going on. And that's exactly. not what people, people exactly. were listening to women, people were hearing what was going on. And they were understanding that it was wrong. And um, and that's why people voted in such overwhelming numbers to repeal the Eighth Amendment. And I just find that so disingenuous. And I, I, I'm glad you're being balanced here because I'm a bit more like, yeah, I probably should be a bit more balanced. But the thing is, like, I don't believe that. And I think that's a handy thing to say. Oh, no, we can't do that because we said to people, that's not what people voted for or mm. what they were talking about on the doorsteps. Mm. So I think hopefully they do move and someone's brave enough to stick their head above the parapet and go, look, it's our job to legislate for this the recommendations are that needs to be better legislation so we need to do that I hope that's going to happen yeah can I just come in there because I think what you're saying there is true but on the other hand even if you were a a politician who believed that I convinced people to vote on the basis of the three-day wait the decent thing to do is to say well look we've now had a review and the practitioners have shown us that the lived experience is that this is an obstacle to access and it particularly burdens the most marginalised and the most disadvantaged and the most isolated women and girls and pregnant people. And we can't continue with that situation because we've looked at it. It's it's not right. So we need to expand that and say, look, it's optional. Your doctor might be able to say to you, oh, I think you should go home and think about this, but you don't have to. I'll give it to you now if you want. But that that's what we want to change. And any politician worth their salt would, would have the the decency and the courage and the interests of women at heart to go and say that. We did we did say the three day wait, and, but that's not working. Yeah. So and we actually need to then it. if you look at what'll happen then uh next, uh, like I said, it'll go to the committee 
Um, they'll have a, a table of work. They'll go through that. They'll come back at recommendations, I presume, um, recommendations that will go to the doll and to cabinet. The doll will have to vote on that. And this is when we go back to the territory of where we were at back in, you know, 2018, looking at who's voting where and why. Um, and Fine Gael have said they will allow a free vote or a vote of conscience. Fianna Fáil have said they will also allow that. Sinn Féin interested, well, it's not a surprise, let's be honest, they will not allow a free vote. They said the party members, this has always been the case for Sinn Féin, um, that they will have to be uh, vote alongside policy decided at the Ordash. What will probably happen with Sinn Féin is that they will probably come under pressure to to basically look at the recommendations of the report, the, of the, the committee's report, before it comes back to the doll, possibly hold an, a meeting of their Ard Corla um, and decide policy-wise what is it that we will back as a party. I think that will be really interesting. Um, well, and Jen, has Mary Lou said anything so far? Sorry if I've missed it. No, I don't think so. I, I might have missed it as well, though. I, I don't maybe, think so. Was she one of the people you could ask maybe about what her take on the findings are? Do, have you heard anything, Breach? Uh, no, but uh, I mean, the day after the publication of the, or the day before the publication, I was on The Week in Politics and Rosemary Conway Walsh from Mayo was on it. And uh, I was asked about it, gave my extensive reply and she was asked about it and she said, oh, I haven't read the report, I can't comment. And then Brian Dobson asked her, well, does is this an issue for you in, in Mayo? Do, do constituents come to you about it? And she said, no, no, nothing to do with me. So, and her, her answer was very... Uh, blunt. Um, Interesting. And I just pointed out, well, the report isn't published yet, but the evidence that is leading to this report has been consistently out there from the National Women's Council, from the Irish Family Planning Association, that there are difficulties with the three-day wait, etc. But um, just a blank, really, on it. So, and I suspect, like most um, parties, not ours, I have to say, or some of the other left parties, but like most parties, there will be some for and against in Sinn Féin. There will be some, like Timmy Dooley, apparently last night on one of the um, p- politics programmes said that people voted for choice, not for a three-day wait. And I was oh, fair play to Timmy Dooley, Fianna Fáil senator. Um, so there will be differences. and uh, But I think we need to understand that where this... When the Citizens' Assembly made their recommendations, they were far-reaching and radical and very much a bit like what we're, we're, we're talking about here this morning, lifting the mm. 12-week limit. They didn't mention a three-day wait. They didn't mention, you know, crimin- they, they were for decriminalisation, all of that stuff. And the citizens are always ahead of the politicians. <laughs> They've been ahead of them on climate change. They've been ahead of them on gender, gender equality, on biodiversity. They'll be ahead of them when the report comes out. And we... We, we have to remember that people are not as backward sometimes as their political representative and it's people we need to appeal to, you know. Final word, um, Jen, on, on kind of what you think will happen now. We, you talked about kicking the can down the road. You think Reid mentioned a year. Uh, it's, it's so, it is a bit grim and depressing, but I do I do take heart from your bill, um, Breed. That's a bit of good news, all right. But what, what do you think? Well, we're not that far off from the summer recess, realistically. Um, I would be very surprised if the health committee, because they already have a programme of work that they're in the middle of right now. Um, I'd be very surprised. In fact, I would be genuinely shocked if we if they are finished considering this before the summer. So realistically, what you're looking at probably is the term afterwards. So the autumn term when we come back after the summer um, and let's say a, a reasonable amount of time for consideration like something like this would be probably around 10, 10 hearings, 10 sessions from my experience of covering these similar things in the past. 
um, it would not be beyond the realms of possibility to have uh, recommendations potentially ready for cabinet to consider and for the Dáil to consider um, in before Christmas. It's, I think that's very doable. And I think anybody who says it's not, I would love to hear the explanation why. And I'm actually being generous with the time here, understanding that politicians already have a lot of other things on. And there's a lot going on in the world of health, as we know. Um, so should that be the case, then you could also imagine a situation whereby after the Christmas break, could there be a vote on this uh, in the Dáil? Yes, probably. Well, it'll have to, there'll have to be, if there's any recommended changes to legislation, there has to be a vote, obviously. So that's where I kind of see it going. I think there'll be a debate between now and then, as much as some people maybe don't want to have it, it has to happen. Um, and by that stage, I'd say a lot, of, a lot of people's positions will have crystallised, will have that vote of conscience for most parties. Sinn Féin will probably have come to a, a decision in terms of their own policy about it, what they're willing to back in terms of different actual, different parts, different amendments, you know, let's say three day wait here, decriminalisation there, they'll come to a position on that. And then it'll come down to the vote and that will be it. And it'll, it'll either pass or it doesn't, you know. Uh, have we heard from Marie O'Shea yet about any of this? Or I'm hoping to talk to her. <laughs> Marie, if you're listening, get in touch. Yeah, I'm sure she's listening. Breed, final word from you, because you did use the word courage earlier, which I think was interesting. What would you say to people who uh, are using these words like reluctant and uncomfortable when it comes to these very um, well thought out, well researched recommendations that, uh, that we, they should be taken seriously? How would you appeal to Leo Vradker and others who are using those words? Well, I, I said it in, in the doll yesterday or the day before that, you know, the, th- thinking of it from your own perspective is not good enough. Um, Leo Radker is the leader of the country. He's the Taoiseach. And thinking, immediately thinking, oh, I promised this and I said that. And I can't. This is not good enough. This is about women, girls, pregnant people. And we have to, we, you know, they all talked about, and Jennifer said it earlier on, about going on a journey when we were in the lead up to the repeal referendum, we were all on a journey because actually most of the the cabinet at the time were anti-abortion and were brought on board because of the movement outside, because of events like Savita, because of the evidence of TFMR, because of the um, In My Shoes evidence and all that sort of stuff. Um, and they went on the journey and I said to them the other day, please get back on the bus. The journey's not over. We need you to come with us because the evidence has shown us that this is not good and, and, and full and comprehensive health provision for women. You wouldn't get it if it was men's things, you know what I mean? Where, where else would you get this sort of dealing with um, health regulations in so tightly in legislation and making such a political football of it, you know? So I'm, I'm asking them to get back in the bus and join the journey again. Basically. Just on that breed, you're, you're saying that um, you don't believe that any issue of men's health would be this, uh, would be sort of uh, focused in this way. No, well, obviously men's reproductive health is different, but you, they, when, when they want to have a vasectomy or anything else or take Viagra or anything else, it's just a given. But for, for women to control their reproductive health, it's a big feckin' deal. It's political. It goes to the heart of the whole sort of setup of society and the misogyny about controlling us. And, you know, there's so many examples of it. We don't have to go over the history for women to understand what I mean. But men have to remember that too. And particularly men who are in a position of political leadership. They have to remember that and they have to get back on that journey and stop thinking about themselves and their own backyard, but to think of the the, 
what is needed, the health needs of women, of girls, of pregnant people, and really put this issue uh, back into the history books that we move forward, not back. Well, that's a great place to end this um, very interesting discussion. And I thank you both very much for coming on because I know you're both very busy with your job. So I do appreciate it. Um, Jennifer Bray and Breed Smith, thank you so much. We'll see where it goes and we'll definitely be returning to this issue. Thank you, Roisin. Thanks, Jennifer. That's all we have time for. Thanks so much to Breed Smith and Jennifer Bray. We will, as I said, be coming back to this subject. And if any thoughts on it or on anything else, do email us, the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. And you can also find us on social at IT Women's Podcast. That's it from me. Mind yourselves, and I'll talk to you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.